The Small Business Big Marketing Show is made possible thanks to Cornerstone, an Aussie-owned, family-run offshoring business based in the Philippines, where I have just spent two mind-expanding weeks. Now, if the idea of reducing your running costs by 70-plus percent, freeing up hours in your week, and generally creating more freedom in your life makes you want to scream, hell yeah, then book a free feasibility assessment with the guys at Cornerstone. Seriously, you will never, ever look back. Give them a call on 029083-6689 or visit cornerstonebusinesssolutions.com.au. After escaping the cubicle in 2008, Stone and Wood's Jamie Cook is a self-confessed corporate refugee. One who's gone on to build the largest privately owned brewery in Australia, which also happens to brew my favourite beer ever. Yeah, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Bowie. And welcome back to the Small Business Big Marketing Show. I am your host, as per always, Timbo Reed. but you, so much more importantly, you are a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. That's what we've been doing around here for 355 episodes. Today is no different. If you are new to this world, welcome. Big hugs. If you're back for your however manyth time, love your work. Thanks for sticking with us. I hope it is having a profound effect on that beautiful business of yours. Hey, big show today. Jamie Cook, co-founder of Stone and Wood, Australia's largest privately owned brewery, shares some unbelievable insights into taking risks, managing crazy growth, and some pretty solid brand building strategies. Uh, by the way, guys, just between you and I, Stone and Wood, it's my favourite beer in the world. So there's a little bit of a fanboy warning on this interview. I get a little bit gushy. <laughs> hey, I share another low-cost marketing idea, uh, which I call Stayin' Alive, my Stayin' Alive content strategy. I think you're going to like that. And we go back into the archives, into the vault, uh, revisiting a chat I had with my personal mentor, Mr. Motivation himself, Keith Abraham. As per usual, team, there is marketing, G-O-L-D, dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So please, let's get stuck right in. Hey, thanks to everyone who has booked their seat so far on my upcoming fourth Create Freedom Through Outsourcing Tour to the Philippines on May 1 to 3, 2017. And thank you to all those who are asking questions. It means you're interested. It means you're excited. It means there's a little bit of doubt. One of the main questions I'm getting asked is, what do we actually do? (laughs) Great question, although I do think I've kind of covered that in past episodes. We check out all the offshoring options available to you, the business owner in Australia, that are available in the Philippines. We visit business process outsourcing businesses where you can hire a virtual assistant. You can, we visit, we explain what a virtual assistant is. That'd be a good start. 
We go to dedicated bookkeeping agencies, marketing agencies. We visit an Aussie manufacturer who's moved over there from Brisbane and is making gazillions. He started off with one business idea. He's moved across to another because you can. It's cheap over there. Uh, We meet a university professor who takes us inside the Filipino culture and explains how to work with them and how to get the best of what are a beautiful race of people. And we hang out with you, me, hang out with nine other motivated business owners. And you know what the best part of, I think, one of the best parts of the trip is? It's the bus time between visits where we talk about our businesses, we share our fears and our excitements around our businesses, and we help each other along the way. You're going to get a lot of time with me to help resolve all your marketing questions. We have a lot of fun. There is karaoke involved. My go-to karaoke song, Living on a Prayer by the Jove. Or Bed of Roses. Don't mind Bed of Roses by the Jove. But uh, we have a lot of fun. You want to find out more, head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash tour or ring Cornerstone on 029083 and book your spot. Seats are limited. Small bus, small group, lots of fun. Coming up after this interview, I share three ideas that grabbed my attention. Plus, I've got another low-cost marketing idea for you that is going to breathe new life into your helpful content. But first, let's meet today's successful business owner. I was very excited about this. Jamie Cook, co-founder of Stone and Wood, the largest privately owned brewery in Australia, based Guess where? (laughs) In beautiful Byron Bay. I know it's kind of weird, isn't it? Bit of a Byron theme on this show of recent months. Why shouldn't there be? It's a beautiful part of Australia. Stone and Woods Pacific Pacific Ale also happens to be my favourite beer of all time. So there is a little bit of fanboying going on from my end during this interview. Get over it. We're all allowed to get excited about certain brands. This is one that I love. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't we just have a brewery owner in Peter Fielding from Burley Brewing on a couple of episodes ago? What makes this guy any different? It's a good question. It's a really good question. Firstly, I think these little breweries are doing some really cool marketing and they really do get the power of branding. We can learn a lot from them. Secondly, Jamie's a really smart operator. Thanks to strong business focus and massive respect for marketing, big lesson there, Stone and Wood have a turnover of $60 million a year and a sales volume of 12 million litres annually, which is pretty good given the insanely competitive marketplace that beer is. Oh, and did I mention I love stone and wood? So grab your journal and a cheeky little pale ale if you have one on hand because there really is golden hops dripping from the ceiling of this interview. Sorry, bad dad joke. I started off by looking Jamie glowingly in the eye and asking him, how this wonderful brand started. Yeah, it started uh, back in 2008. The business started operating, but it was a couple of years before that. The three of us, myself, Brad Rogers and Ross Jurisic, had been working at big, uh, at a big brewery, uh, big breweries for a while, um, and I'd been working brewing most of my working life, and um, we just really had enough of the, the whole corporate uh, lifestyle <laughs> and all the, all the garbage that came with that. Oh, um, yeah. So, so the three of us sort of became corporate refugees. After talking about it for a couple of years, we decided it was either we had a one of those moments where you either, you know, do it or get off the pot, so to speak. And yep. uh, 
And uh, so we said, well, we're going to go and do this. Um, we, we'd been in the brewing industry for a number of years, all of us collectively, and had complementary skills. Um, so we decided we want to start our own brewery. Um, we sort of looked at where we wanted to do it. Uh, we had a sort of geographic scope between Ballina and Noosa. Um, and we kept coming back to Byron as just being the place to do it. And I guess a lot of people ask us over the years, why Byron? And it's really always <laughs> why not? Yeah, that's exactly the answer we usually give. <laughs> yeah. Hey, tell um, me, before, hold your thought there because yeah. um, corporate refugees, uh, you're not the first. You've got two mates who are feeling the same. There's a lot of listeners. It's funny, I always say the listeners of this show are small business owners, but I, I know there's also a lot of wannabe cubicle escapees. What, what was giving you the shits in corporate? Yeah, oh, gee, that's a long list. Um, <laughs> what, what was at the top of it? Yeah, I think at the top of it was actually lack of security, you know. It's a funny thing. People yeah. say you work for a big corporate. It's quite a secure, you know, you've got a job for life, so to speak. But but the revolving door and the reorganisation of the place every 12 to 18 yeah. months was, was a point where, you know, um, you, we were paying a lot for security because there was actually a lot of insecurity in everybody in the business. Um, so, you know, we thought we're probably just as secure doing our own thing. That was probably the first one, security. The second one was... Um, just the politics, you know, and and big businesses, unfortunately, you know, as big businesses merge and acquire things, they get bigger and bigger. They get to a point where they actually just end up doing business with themselves Mm -hmm. and forget about their customers, the drinkers, everything else out there just becomes almost a a sideshow and it's actually about doing business with yourself and that just Mm -hmm. becomes so frustrating and to be part of that. So, sort of so, so you, you so, and your two yeah. business, you and your two business partners, um, you've all been in corporate. Have any of you got small business experience? Um, not really. I think we've had, you know, over the years, a couple of us might have sort of done a little few things. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I started a little business, but um, my wife got pregnant, and we sort of pulled the pulled the handbrake on that point, and I went back into working for somebody. Oh, there you go go uh, back but, into the insecurity of working for someone. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> Figure that out. Uh, so, so that yeah, I love that. Was a long that. time ago, though. What was your therefore see beautiful none of you have got small business experience but you all decide you know what we're going to start one what was your greatest fear before launching stone and wood in 2008 yeah it's uh it's, it's the fear of obviously putting your house on the line and um you know upping stumps and uh and giving it a crack uh i guess the fear of you know the unknown a little bit i mean we had a very strong vision and business plan and there was some almost an inevitability about that that we thought we were going to succeed obviously you don't go into it if you don't think you're going to but but yeah what was going to come up and how we were going to react to things that come up along the way i guess was was probably some of the big fear um when you say and, you had a strong yeah, vision you know, you've got a lot of you know i think yeah a lot of lot of lot of people you know, relying on you. Um, between us, I think collectively we have eight kids. Um, hmm. So that's a that's a you know that's a big thing to actually make sure that we're going to have food on the table every night. You talk about a strong vision. It sounded like quite a driver. Could you articulate that? Yeah, we. I mean, we we really wanted to create a brewing business that uh, that was sort of founded on the traditional strength of the brewing industry, which comes out of European European villages where the, the local brewery is a key part of the local fabric. Um, you know, village breweries aren't just there to brew beer. They actually help 
the community socialise, um, which is an important part of making sure your community's growing, obviously. Um, but uh, and that, we think, was missing um, from Australia over the years for probably 60-odd years between lots of mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up with two big brewing businesses in Australia and ripped the heart out of what really was that sort of social fabric that uh, connection that breweries had. Uh, and we felt we wanted to tap back into that and, and a community like Byron was a great place to do it. Um, yeah. That's probably the key vision. Had you guys at that point in 2008 um, happened upon your Pacific Ale, which I'm guessing was your first brew? Yeah, we. Because I mean, that's what the, that's that's the big uh, that's the big ticket, isn't it? That's the thing that's that's kind of launched Stone and Wood, right? Yeah, that's sort of our flagship. I, I guess um, that beer came out of um, in the in the twelve months between uh, us finding a site and then designing the brewing equipment and waiting for that to be built uh, and shipped over to Australia. Um, Brad, who was. Uh, the brewer out of the three of us, um, up in his shed up in the hills behind Byron, had a little small little brewing kit and he was, you know, bubbling all things away in the back of that shed, a bit like a young Einstein sort of movie. I remember Love he sort it. of came out, came out of the shed, you know, with that sort of similar look on his face, look at this thing I've created. Um, <laughs> and um, and really what we were looking for then was a beer that really was would capture what uh, drinking beer in this part of the world was all about. Um, and can, can I just understand that? Because so you have gone, you've left your corporate jobs, you've gone said we're starting a brewery in Byron, we are going to get some real estate and get all the plant and equipment going. At that point, you you, you are yet to actually um, identify your flagship brew. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> am no. I, is, is that not us about, or am I missing something? Uh, no, that's pretty typical in, in brewing. I mean, a, a passionate day, brewer. You're all bloody artists, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we backed ourselves <laughs> that we would be able to brew good beer. Um, Brad was a was a very uh, well renowned brewer and um, ah, right had been a beer judge all around the world, and you know he he could see what was going on in the industry in terms of flavour evolution and all that sort of stuff, um, and ingredients you know coming to the fore, new new hop varieties being grown, etc. So no, we we always knew that we were going to brew what styles of beer we were going to brew. Um, we certainly knew that. Um, and in between the equipment being designed and it arriving, we were able to fine-tune wow. what the beer was going to be before the kit was put together and uh, we were able to start brewing. Jamie, uh, I promised my listeners I wouldn't get too gushy because I'm a bit of a Stone and Wood fanboy, but just tell us about that moment when you realised that that was the beer that was going to launch the brand. Yeah, it goes back to probably the idea that um, that beer was trying to um, tap into as the key thing, I guess. Um, you know, we could have just knocked around and created a beer that we all loved the flavour of, but it was more about that beer needed to fulfil an idea, and that idea was that the occasion, that classic Byron occasion where you've been swimming at Main Beach, you walk across the beach into the beer garden and have that first beer as the salt water's drying on your back and that refreshing moment, and that's what we wanted to brew a beer for. So... All uh, all our focus was on producing a beer that fulfilled that occasion. And when um, Brad eventually, you know, was happy enough with the beer that he wanted to show us, um, it certainly this was in his in his shed in Eureka. Um, it was it was very close to what we wanted, and we thought, wow, this is this is this is, this is going to be close to the money. Um, of course, brewing in a fifty litre little home home kit at home is going to be different to brewing at two and a half thousand litres a batch. So once we once we got the brewery and put it together and the first brew 
uh, that we put through, it was it was very very close. It was about eighty five percent ripe. We thought, and you know, almost there. Those hops were starting to come through beautifully. Those great fruity hops that really sort of sing that beer. And then the second, we made a few tweaks, and then the second brew that came through, um, we stood around the table in the kitchen of the brewery and tasted this beer and went, "Yep, that's it." Step away from the car driver. Step away from wow. the car driver. Do not touch that recipe. Do not touch. Do not touch that formulation. That is exactly it. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a great moment. Um, but you know that was a great moment for us. Mate, I've got hairs, the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up because one of the things that we can all learn from that. I mean, you're talking about a beer recipe, but you know what you are also talking about is a very a creative decision and a very subjective decision and a decision that could determine whether putting your house on the line was a smart move or not. So for you guys, was it just like a no-brainer? You've gone, this is it. There's, there is no decision. Or were you feeling a little bit swirly in the guts about to making about to make a big decision? Oh, we, we really loved it. You know, the challenge is we've been all drinking beer of various flavours and varieties for many years. You know, um, the, the, the big challenge was so you just knew. Well, it was a matter of how the everyday drinker was going to take up to it. You know, because that big fruity hop character yep. that punches you in the nose when you pick up a glass of Pacific Ale is different. You know, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we coined the phrase the neck snap. I remember the first, you know, couple of months standing in bars watching people <laughs> uh, get, walk away from the bar with spoons in their hand and they'd hold the glass up to their nose and sort of head would snap back going, what the hell's that? You know, um, and that's, that's you know, that that is a positive because it's certainly a memorable thing for drinkers, but also, you know, it, it was yes. a bit divisive. Um, people didn't expect that in a beer and therefore it took them a while to get used to it, uh, to some some people. Um, yeah. And yeah, banging on doors and pubs and bottle shops around the country for the next two years—it was a—it wasn't easy. Um, it was a—it was a hard slog. Why? What was hard? Um, well, here we were, you know, the bottle shops and bars had enough beer. They've always had enough beer to sell. Um, you know, what's another mm. brewery going to have to offer? Some guys that have set up shop in Byron Bay, you know, a bunch of hippies. You know, what? What? And this beer—this beer smells and tastes weird. You know, why would I want to stop that? Um, yes. All those classic rejections. Um, you know, but. We just didn't take no for an answer. We just kept banging away. And, and, and Brad and Ross tell a story. You know, they were, uh, Brad was brewing. Ross was out there selling. And um, Brad rang Ross one day and said, you know, how's the weekly sales going? And Ross said, oh, two. And he said, what, two kegs? Two. He said, yeah, two kegs. What, for the for the day? No, for the week. And we're like, Okay. Two kegs for the whole week. That's not going to feed three families. <laughs> um, but uh, mm. you know, it was one of those moments of oh shit. Okay, we're, we'll we'll keep persisting here, and we'll we'll eventually get through. And that's that's what we did. We just kept wearing out the shoe leather. How far into that? How far into that was the two keg sale for the week? Was it a six months? Oh uh, the, the, the... uh, yeah, six to eight months in. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it was all very well. Uh, words are cheap sometimes, Jamie. Um, you just kind of keep wearing out the shoe leather. But is that what you really did? Did you ever kind of re-engineer your pitch? Did you sort of think, we've got to look at this a different way? We need to get, I don't know, a fancy brochure. We need to do tape. What? Where was the tipping point where someone all of a sudden signed a big distribution contract? Um no, it was probably just one one glass at a time, you know. Uh, in the beer game, there's lots of events where you can just get out and speak to people face-to-face and you just got to go into bars and, you know, 
when people walk up to a bar and, you know, you've got your beer on tap, you buy them a beer. You know, that, that seems a bit weird. Some, some stranger buying you a beer in a bar is a bit, you know, mm-hmm. can be a bit weird. But, but uh, we were doing all those sorts of things, just introducing really? people to the beer, telling the story one glass of beer at a time, and slowly but surely that word of mouth spread to a point where it actually started to get some acceptance. And uh, Wow. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes you've just got to do things that aren't scalable, right? I mean, wonder buying individuals in pubs beers isn't very scalable, um, but that's what you did, and you knew at some point that there was going to be what what I think Malcolm Gladwell termed the tipping point. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess you know, and I've heard people say before, you know, if someone hears about something from two or three sources, then you know that there's something obviously going on about it, and that's the word of the power of word of mouth, um, a little bit of PR. Uh, you know, we've had, we had some good connections in the sort of beer media, so to speak. So we've got some good third-party endorsement uh, as well. Uh, but slowly yeah, right. but surely, it, it, started to, it started to fire. You guys must have had uh, some serious cash reserves to be able to kind of just bide your time. Uh, yeah, we, we did have some cash, um, you know, and that's one or, of the... Or, or were you living off kale? Uh, yeah, well, I think I think one of the guys said, you know, hopefully one day we can stop buying black and gold bread again and actually go down to the local baker and buy some decent sourdough, you know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I guess cash cash is a really interesting thing, particularly for corporate refugees who are so used to, you know, signing the invoice and sticking it in the outtray and oh, someone, yeah. over in, someone over in accounts takes care of that. Yep. Um, to all of a sudden to have to worry about cash flow, um, is, that's probably one of the biggest shocks we had as corporate refugees. But we watched our pennies. You know, we were doing almost almost weekly to daily cash flow projections at times to make sure that all in, you know we could make ends meet. We had great suppliers. Um, we really reached out to our suppliers who believed in us, and they helped us out in terms of trading terms. And to this day, they're still our suppliers, and um, we never forget those days where they really helped us out through that. Um, so that's an important piece. But obviously in beer, one of the challenges of cash flow is we pay excise tax um, mm-hmm. within within seven days of the beer leaving the brewery. So every Monday you have to pay excise, which relates to about 20% of the wholesale price of beer. Um, you have to pay that to the ATO on the Monday for all the beer that's left the seven days before. It might have just, you might have only just moved it to a warehouse or into a wholesale or to a retailer, but they, won't, they probably aren't going to pay you for another, you know, 14 to 28 days. Wow. So um, that's a pretty hard thing on cash flow as well. But um, you've just got to be very disciplined. You know, cash is one of those things you have to be really focused on. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, so yeah, we, we certainly um, had some tough times but um, got through it. And, um, you know, once well, it started to fire, that was – it was we couldn't hold on, you know. It was it – was, was demand we couldn't meet. Well, tell us about that, not being able to hold on. Because I, I actually, before you do, because you operate in such a crowded marketplace, can you wrap some numbers for listeners around where you are at now, where Stone and Wood is it now, and then let's kind of backtrack to when the, the rocket ship took off. So, can you talk revenue? Can you talk staff? I, just somehow paint a picture of Stone and Wood's success today. Um, you know, from a revenue perspective, this year we'll do about $60 million in turnover. Um, in volume, that sales volume, which is sort of the way in brewing industry we sort of measure things, we'll, we'll, we'll do around about 12 million litres of beer this year. Um, and we have about 100 people in the Stone and Wood business now, permanent permanent people. And so that sort of gives you an idea of scale wow. within, you know, uh, the nine years of operating, I guess. Um, How does so that make rapid- you feel? 
Um, really, really comfortable. There's good people in there doing doing the things that we all we all tried to do and did from the start. But now there's a great team of people that really do the do every day and really make the business sing um, and they're going to grow it going forward. Um, so certainly give you a sense of pride. Um, but going back to, you know, eight, back to that 2008, did we ever think we'd get to that? Um, I guess we had some sort of vision that we'd like to be a strong regional brewer uh, and that meant um, serious volume and serious scale. Um, you know, the three of us going into business with three, with three families means that you mm-hmm. have to get scale, otherwise, you know, you're going to have three very poor families, but if you want to grow the business and make it make it sing commercially, then you have to have scale in mind from day one because you can't just have three families in something just to have a job. No. Uh, How do you manage that? Um, you've got three part. You've got two partners, so there's three three partners in the business. Each one of them, it sounds like, has wives. Um, you guys must have had a really strong friendship before starting the business? Yeah, that's a question we get asked a lot. And I think, yes, we were friends. I think the differentiator is, though, that we all workmates. Um, uh, and I think that's that's a big that's a big thing to think about when people, you hear all the horror stories about people getting into business with their friends. Um, and my sort of advice to people is, Matt, is you know, if you don't, if you never work with somebody, you don't really see a whole side of their life. Um, uh-huh. And just because they behave the way they do with you as a friend, because they've known you over the years, is maybe not how they behave in, in, when they're in the workplace. So the fact that we'd worked together for a number of years before doing this, we knew how each other operated, how we, how we operated, where our strengths were, where our weaknesses were. So we covered that pretty well, almost intuitively. Um, mm, and then, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah make, make sure we've got some space outside because we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time together in the workplace. You need to have some space outside of that. So, yeah, it's, it's getting that right balance. But certainly, yeah, the families, the families sort of stuck by us. And there was some rolling of eyes, I'm sure, in behind the scenes um, for a long while. But yeah, but, uh, yeah. Now let's talk about remaining independent, Jamie, uh, because uh, I went into a Dan Murphy's couple of months ago for overseas listeners. Dan Murphy's is the biggest beer and wine retailer in Australia. Um, They don't stock it. Um, You have refused to kind of go down the path of selling out to a big uh, brewery chain like a a Carlton United or whatever, what's the Japanese one, Sapporo or any of those. Kieran, you, you have remained fiercely independent and fiercely local. What does that mean? And why have you done it? Uh, it? It comes back to the vision we had to start with about that um, strong village brewery concept and the re- being a regional brewer. And um, so that was the first thing: is we've built we've built a business now that the community can be proud of. They're also um, seeing the benefit of because you know we employ 100 people locally, um, and therefore you know the, the, it's not just uh, our families anymore that rely on. Uh, the business. It's it's hundred families out there that rely on the business, and the flow-on effect of that in the region is massive. You know, when we first started to outgrow our original brewery site, we we looked at how we were going to cope with that increasing demand, and we could have just gone and had our beer contract brewed like some of our peers have done over the years, 
uh, and had someone else worry about producing the beer in some other part of the country. But we didn't do that. We said, well, no, um, we wanted to be true to what we were and be very authentic about business and also continue to support the region. So we built a bigger brewery here in the Northern Rivers, um, knowing that reinvesting that uh, money back into the local region is going to continue to pay off and continue to help support the region. So so really, we're a regional brewer um, where we're, we've got a lot of stakeholders in the region. So selling out isn't something that, you know, really is really something we're going to be too concerned about when uh, doing when, um, when we see the strength of the team uh, and the reliance they have on the business and the, and the emotional connection they have with the business. It's, it's um, why would you want to leave 100 people high and dry? Because if you sold it, the next thing that would happen is they'd close the brewery and move that production volume to somewhere else. And, you know, it's just... It's just not part of what we're about. The the pure capitalist in me can't help but ask, what does that cost you and your partners? Because your $60 million turnover, your 12 million litres could quite easily, I, I don't know, you've probably done the numbers, the what ifs, could it be $600 million turnover and 12,000 million litres if you had have chosen not to remain Independent and local. Yeah, look, that's a that's a really good question. There's a, there's a number number of ways to approach that. The first one is, I guess, about how fast you grow, and we have grown pretty quickly and put a lot of strain on the team over the years. Um, and and probably for the last eighteen months or so, we've actually put the brakes on and slowed the business growth down. Um, and you know, four years ago when our demand was at its peak, we could have you know done what a lot of businesses do. They would have gone to the market, floated it, mm. raised capital build a massive brewery and chase that demand as crazily as they could have um, to grow the enterprise value. Um, that's not a model we're interested in. It's about smart growth for us and putting too much pressure on the team, the brand, um, all of those things by going and chasing that big dollar isn't something we think is going to build a sustainable business for the long term. And also the type of business you want to own and you want to be part of. You know, mm. we love we love the scale of you know 100 people. It could probably grow a little bit more, um, but you don't want to probably get too big where you lose that personal connection with the people. You can walk through the business and know everybody's name, who their partners and wives are, their kids, what they're into, out of work. All those sort of things are really important to us. Um, so that's that's key part of it. Is, you know, as long as the business is providing us with the, the things that we look for, and yeah, it's great to have a nice income, but also the connection with people in the business, um, the lifestyle that the, this industry can provide. You know, it's a great industry to be in. Um, you know, what other industry can you, you know, actually say I'm jumping on a plane and flying to Denver in a couple of weeks to um, to do some research into beer and you know. Um, then head off to the DC for a conference and that sort of stuff, <laughs> uh, and, and you know have to, have to drink beer every day to you know as part of the part of the trip. I love it, mate. Uh, so, so what you what, what you're sort of saying is like. It comes almost down to that question of how much is enough. You've created a wonderful business. You love your product. You're employing a hundred people in the community. You're supporting their families. Um, you can only drive so many Ferraris, right? Well, that's that's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, you know, I mean, and we're not that sort of people. You know, we drive pretty simple yeah. cars. We live in pretty simple houses. You know, for us, it's and you know, part of our motto for some time has been keep it simple, less is more, that sort of stuff, and take it slow. Yeah. And and we're really into that stuff. You know, it's um. Have you have you had have you had many of the big boys knocking on your door with rather large checkbooks? Oh, you know, the big novelty checks are probably out there. You know, um, yeah, and yeah, we have had 
conversations over the years of people trying to, you know, wave big novelty checks under our noses. But but the reality is, it's you, you look at back at what you've created, and you just can't see, you just can't see that that is a future for the people in the business. And also, what the hell would we do? You know, um, you got to do yeah. something right. So you might as well run a brewery in Byron Bay, yeah? Well, it could be worse. It could be a lot worse. Tell me, you have a very strong focus on stakeholders. You have a program called Ingrained. Is this one and the same? Yeah, well, yeah. There's a few things going on there. So, yeah, stakeholders is something that we've uh, sort of of started from a couple of years into the business when um, the three of us had it like a team day and we said we need to get the whole team together and talk about planning for the next 12 months. Uh, and then we realised there were like 16 people in the business and went, bloody hell, where did all these people come from? <laughs> so um, so that sort of woke us up to the fact that, well, you know, the vision and the dream of three guys quitting their corporate gigs and going to work in Bi- start a business in Byron Bay is, is a great dream for us. But um, what about these 16 people? You know, what, what motivates them to come to work every day to bring our dream to life. That's not, you know, that's not a really great thing for them. So we had to really start thinking about what the purpose of the business could be that is something that was motivating and aspirational for our for our team and not just us. So so we started um, developing a sort of a purpose uh, approach to things and, you know, so the idea of building a sustainable brewing business that really actively develops and nurtures and embraces and adds value to its stakeholders, and those stakeholders being, you know, the communities around the brewery and the community we've built. So the team, the suppliers, uh, the drinkers, the customers, our, our shareholders. We've got a number of small shareholders um, that we've, we've brought along the way, um, the environment and the community. Um, so all wow. of those stakeholders, those, all those stakeholders are an important part of what we do. So when we make big decisions these days, we... We look. We go back to that and go. Well, where's the value that's going to be created for all of our stakeholders if we're going to do this? So, it's a really nice litmus test in terms of the way we develop our strategy and way we develop the business. Uh, and ingrained, uh, ingrained is the program that we. But before hold, hold your thought on ingrained. I'm just going to challenge you on it. I know I'm going to lose the challenge, Jamie. But you and I have been in corporate, mate. Um, you and I have heard things like stakeholder engagement and you know all those motherhood statements how how does it how does the rubber hit the road at stone and wood brewery when it comes to making sure that all those stakeholders you just mentioned really do see a val- see value from a decision you make yeah so a lot of printers come and try and sell you know undercut uh, our current suppliers and we go well look at the end of the day you know we could save a hell of a lot of money by by moving to this new printer. Uh, but when we look at our current supplier, they've been with us from day one. They've been providing great service and loyalty all the way. When we're in trouble, they bail us out. Um, they have been a brilliant part of our business from day one, but we've added value to them. They've added value to us as we've grown. So why would we make a short-term decision to go and move to a done supplier when these guys have just been doing a great job for us? Love it. Love it. Uh, um, and there's time and time again things like that, and that's you know that's the way we try and evaluate decisions. It's the impact it has on on each of those stakeholders. Yeah, you know you could put brass plaques on the wall around the place and have mission statements and all that yep. sort of stuff, but you've actually got to look and read it. That's, that's yeah, yeah. part of the difference. When in a big corporate where you've got thousands of people, 
goes back to that thing I mentioned earlier about having 100, 150 people. There's scale there and you can really make sure that people understand what you're trying to do. Love it, mate. T- tell me, beer is a crowded, crowded marketplace. You, uh, you know, craft beer in particular, boutique, there's boutique breweries popping up. Almost it feels like in every suburb these days. Uh, there's some pretty crook ones, but there's some pretty good ones. How do you remain top of mind in such a crowded marketplace? Great question. Yeah, there's, there's probably, uh, when we started out, there were 58 breweries in Australia. There's now nearly 500. Wow. Um, and there's one opening almost every week at the moment. Um, so there is a lot of clutter out there. I mean, 500 breweries is, when you put that in perspective, there's 2,500 wineries in Australia. So, so there's, you know, not quite as cluttered as the wine market. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the, the way you stay ahead of that clutter and keep your head out of the clutter is actually firstly scale. So we've grown big enough to be able to probably stay ahead of that big cluster of small brewers out there. Um, so what that means is that we've got a brand with strong loyalty, awareness and trial, uh, and, and that actually has throughput through bars and model shops for us, so our products sell off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and we work hard uh, to make sure we've got a straight, very good connection with our drinkers. Um, How? How do you brand, do that? that that's, that's from brew, a straight line connection from brewery to your drinkers. Is there one particular tip that you can share that allows you to do that? Yeah, social media, I think, is 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 a huge enabler. Um, you know, um, and we look at social media, you know, when we first started back in 2008, I think those social media platforms have been around. Mm. Certainly some of Instagram wasn't around. Facebook was only just starting off, uh, I think, uh, but to be used by businesses anyway. Um, so we were able to get in from day one and started the journey of building followers and likers through social mm-hmm. media platforms. Um, and we've always been very active, very engaged with the people that follow us. If you look at our engagement ratings, they're, they're, they're very high. Uh, not that we try and chase engagement. It's more about just that uh, dialogue uh, yep. that's important to us. Um, so, so certainly social media has been a massive enabler for us. And, and you know, for, I've always sort of thought that social media gives you the ability to go back out and talk to your drinkers one-on-one, whereas... If that didn't exist, we would have to be doing things like spending a lot of money on advertising or PR and all those sort of traditional things to try and get out there and uh, engage with our drinkers. So social media was a big one. The other one was beer festivals. There's there's beer festivals in every major town now in Australia every year, and and they're a great way, once again, you know, to to get in front of your drinkers and, uh, and talk to them, tell them the story. Um, pick their brains in terms of what they like to drink, what they don't like to drink, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, So, yeah, social media was a big enabler. um, But the brand is probably the big one. We've always been focused on brand. um, What does that uh, mean? Well, a brand is how people uh, connect emotionally with you. So um, what we find is a lot of the smaller brewers tend to be very focused on brewing beer and relating to their drinkers on a rational level. So this beer is brewed with these hops, with this malt, comes from, you know, <laughs> this style of brewing, therefore it should taste like that. And it's a very rational... Yeah, very rational. <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, there is a, there is a group of drinkers out there. Oh, yeah. That, you know, wankers, yeah, um, wankers. 
Yeah, well, there's, there's not many of them, but uh, thank God. But um, but we've always thought about beer as being, you know, the enabler of conversation, not the topic of conversation. Um, so that's the, the, the challenge for some of the small brewers is they don't really think about how their brand is different in the marketplace, what it stands for, you know, what position it takes in people's minds, those sorts of things. So so we've always been focused very much on having a strong brand, um, one that's, you know, well differentiated, people are very clear about what it stands for, um, and it's very aspirational, you know, and, and I think the whole holiday thing at Byron has been a part of that, you know, the holiday in a bottle is, is a key part of what Pacific Ale is all about, is people drink that bottle of Pacific Ale and they, it transports them back to the holiday they had or wish they had in Byron Bay. Um, yeah, I love it. To... We talk a lot on this show about storytelling, Jamie, and, and your storytelling for Stone and Wood is exactly that. You talk about coming off the beach. You talk about coming together with mates. Given that beer has a run-up start, you know, it's it's an easy story to tell. It's harder if we're talking about, I don't know, paint, for example, but I think every brand, and it sounds like you'd agree, needs to um, – needs every, every product or service needs to build a brand and every brand, one of the pillars, should be storytelling. So um, I love what you're doing yeah, there, mate. Um, listen, uh, uh, wrapping things up, love – I mean, I could keep talking to you forever. In fact, I wish I had a stone and wood handy, but it's only 10.48 in the morning, so <laughs> – somewhere <laughs> <laughs> exactly right hey um uh just 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 finally i do i've always finished with five quick questions completely unrelated to what we've been talking about but before we get there you talked about growth you talked about incredible growth you talked about putting the brakes on 12 months ago what's one tip that you could give to our listeners about when they are experiencing extraordinary growth um I think you've got to watch the strain that it puts on your people. Um, and growing too fast means that you're putting your your team under a lot of pressure. Um, you're probably, they're probably operating on the edge, so to speak. Um, you're potentially making decisions a bit quicker than you really want to be. Um, and you're bringing, to cope with that growth, you're probably bringing people in that may not be the right fit mm. uh, for your business. Um, but they've got the skills you need at the time, and if you want to continue to grow at that rate, then you need those skills. Um, and also the financial strain of, of rapid growth. You know, um, growth growth chews up cash very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so, yeah, growth, growth can be great, but it can also cripple your business. Yeah, see that time and time again. Uh, one last question before we get into the five quickies. Where did the name Stone and Wood come from? Naming a beer is worse than naming your kids. It's such a difficult job uh, to try and come up with a name. Um, it really taps into the elemental uh, aspect of brewing. Brewing, you know, is very much around natural raw ingredients and, uh, you know, it's sort of got that same sort of five elements, feel of air, water, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and And stone and wood sort of tapped into that for me. Byron's a very natural, earthy, grounded place, so stone and wood sort of once again tapped into that. Um, and then in, as part of that, we actually brew a beer once a year called Stone Beer, which we brew. Um, we, we heat stones up over a wood fire uh, until they're red hot and tip them in the brew kettle uh, to boil uh, the brew. That's the way brewers used to brew before steam electricity. So... Um, that's a nice little way of, once again, going back to your point about storytelling. It, it, it's a way of bringing the story of Stone and Wood to life. It taps into the medieval way of ruling as well. 
Given you given you based in Byron, did you ever consider stoned and wood, or was that completely inappropriate? <laughs> Oh, no, there's a lot of people that, you know, when we first started to see that neck snap I mentioned earlier, you know, people were starting to, because it has a very familiar um, aroma to it. It does. Um, people, yeah, people thought we might have been putting something like that in the beer. But, um, Love yeah, it. Yeah, no, we get all sorts of all sorts of comments about stone or wood. Oh, well. Yeah. You'd set yourself up for it. Okay, five quickies. Here we go. Number one, who do you admire the most? Um, I admire I admire business leaders that um, grow their businesses in a way where they bring the people along for the ride and they um, nurture and improve the talent in their team. Where the leader isn't actually out the front leading from leading the charge; yeah, they're actually yeah. from leading from behind. Yeah, gotcha. Lovely answer. Um, what's on top of your bucket list? Uh, my bucket list at the moment is um, riding uh, a motorbike in the Alps, which I hope to do uh, this northern summer. Wow! Uh, through some of those massive uh, high passes in in the European Alps. Lovely, mate. Uh, what's the first thing you did when you got up this morning? First thing when I got up this morning was open my eyes and went, huh, "I'm awake." That's a good <laughs> thing. That's a good start. I'm alive. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, um, the brain turns on pretty quickly. Uh, my head doesn't stop thinking, unfortunately. My wife tells me that regularly, but, uh, yeah, I continue to, my brain's like a machine. It's just when I'm awake, I'm thinking. Uh, are, you a poor, are you a poor sleeper? Uh, yeah, I only probably sleep about five hours a oh, night, probably. Is that, yeah. Wow, yeah. and you get by with that, obviously. Yep, yep. Good on you. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? I met this bloke at a Telstra event a couple of weeks ago. He thank runs you. a marketing podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 thank you. <clears throat> yes, uh, excellent question. Let me just uh, mark that one. Ten out of ten. Right. Uh, and um, last question, when were you left speechless? Oh, that's a leading question. When you met that bloke at the Telstra event, very good. Oh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hey, hey Jamie. Um, Mate, thank you for Stone and Wood. I can say that um, not as just someone who appreciates uh, great business, great brand building, um, great business leadership, but um, I've been drinking that stuff for a number of years now and I remember my first neck snap and uh, I still get it. I still get excited. I get disappointed when I can't find it all the way down here in Melbourne and I get very excited when um, when I can get my hand on a glass. So, uh, so well done, buddy for bringing it to market and and I wish you guys all the success in the future. Uh, Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. There you go. Jamie Cook, one of the co-founders of Stone & Wood, the largest privately owned brewery in Australia. If you haven't tried their Pacific Ale, don't know what's stopping you. Maybe you don't like beer. I don't know. Hey, coming up, I share my top three attention grabbers from that fireside chat with Jamie. Plus, I've got another low-cost marketing idea for you that I think you're going to love. But first, here's a little something to create more freedom in your business. Support for this show comes from Cornerstone, an Aussie-owned, family-run offshoring business based in the Philippines. You know, one of the great fears business owners have about offshoring is whether the people are suitably qualified, which may be a little unfounded. I asked Cheska, Cornerstone's marketing manager, to share her background. 
I was a consistent university um, scholar. I was a president's lister and a consistent college scholar as well. So I graduated magna cum laude. And um, that's where the high five runs. Yeah, I know. You've been waiting for that, yeah, Timbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a build-up. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I graduated magna cum laude, and I ranked second in the whole university. Cornerstone, where the idea of employing someone smarter than yourself is not just encouraged, but welcomed with open arms. Start working smarter now and employ a virtual marketing assistant. Visit cornerstonebusinesssolutions.com.au or give them a call on 02-9083-6689 and tell them Timbo sent you. Do you enjoy that little ad from Cornerstone? It's a bit of a laugh, isn't it? All right, my top three attention grabbers from my chat with Jamie Cook of Stone and Wood. Thanks to the good guys at Cornerstone. Attention grabber number one. The neck snap. I love that phrase and the thinking behind it. People ask me, how do I know if my podcast is making a difference? And I always say I look for emotional language in the emails you listeners send me and the reviews you leave on iTunes. I I particularly like it when you use words like addictive or love. Then I know I'm making a difference. So what signal do you look for from customers that confirms you're onto something special? Great question to ask. Jamie talks about the next snap. Attention grabber number two, add value to all your stakeholders. You see, in a world of sameness, I think this is a huge differentiator. So many business owners take their supplies for granted or ignore their local community or don't even acknowledge the impact their business decisions may have on the environment. Jamie's inclusive approach is clearly creating a business people want to work for and suppliers want to supply. Attention grabber number three, I love Jamie's unwavering focus on the B word, brand. I love, love, love the question Jamie is constantly asking, which is how can we get people to connect emotionally with our brand? So guys, please ask yourself this question, then action the ideas that come out of it. You'll build a brand in no time. What grabbed your attention, team? Head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 355 and let me know. What have you got to lose? Oh, you know what that means? It is time for one simple yet effective marketing idea that you can implement immediately, one that won't cost you a fortune, if anything, and that might just generate you more awareness, more inquiry, and ultimately more sales. I call today's idea the staying alive content strategy. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. (laughs) Tip number one, if you're a podcaster, don't sing, unless you can sing, which I can't. Now, you're regularly creating helpful content, right? The type I talk about in my book, The Boomerang Effect. Content that helps your precious customers make a more informed purchase decision. Content that ensures you rank well on Google. Content that positions you as a key person of influence. Well done, if you are. If you want to optimize that content so that it doesn't get lost in the haystack that is the internet, then it's time to start repurposing it into other forms that you can share on other sites. This is what I call the Staying Alive content strategy, and it will extend the life of your best content, giving you more bang for your buck 
and getting it in front of new audiences and essentially buyers, right? It also respects the fact that different people consume information differently. Some like to read, some like to listen, some like to watch. So here's my three steps to your helpful content stay in alive strategy. Step number one, pick one of your best pieces of helpful content. Let's say it's a video that's had the most views, comments, or shares. Step two, make a plan for repurposing that video into at least three new pieces of helpful content. You could extract the audio using iSkySoft Video Converter. You could then have that audio transcribed at GoTranscript and turned into a series of written blog posts. You could then pick short quotes from the transcription and design them into social media posters using Canva for Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. Step three, publish your new pieces of repurposed helpful content, sharing them with your social media followers, email list, and with individuals who you know will benefit from them. And here's the pro tip. Revisit the original piece of helpful content you repurposed and update it to include links to the new content. You'll find links to any resources I mentioned over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 355, including a list of 40 ways to repurpose your blog content. And if you'd like help implementing any of the marketing ideas I share in this segment, and there's been plenty, go ahead and join the Small Business Big Marketing Club over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com, where I will personally support your daily marketing journey. So, what have you got to lose? Righto, team, that almost wraps up another episode of the Small Business Big Marketing Show. But don't fret. (laughs) You're probably not fretting. There's plenty more marketing gold coming your way in the weeks ahead, including a chat with one of Australia's leading advertising creatives who's going to explain where big ideas come from and how you and I can harness them, plus plenty more. Hey, many moons ago, I spoke with Mr. Motivation himself and my personal mentor, Keith Abraham, who prior to finding his reason for being was a council worker. In fact, a weed inspector, to be specific. Now he's literally one of Australia's leading motivational speakers. Here's Keithy talking about the moment his life changed for the better. And we're out in the middle of the bush, and all of a sudden, you know, on the last day, a guy stood up and said, here's what we'd like you to do. Um, We'd like you to write down 100 things you want to do in your lifetime. And I thought, I can do that. Because I've had a whole week of people telling me I can be anything, do anything, have anything, or achieve anything. And um, so I'm suitably pumped up, fired up, jacked up and revved up. And I sit under this shady tree with a clipboard and I thought, I've got this mastered, I can do this. And I wrote down six things and I stopped and I thought, geez, life's going to be short. You meant to write 100. I I had to write down 100. And the seventh thing I wrote down, now they gave us 90 minutes to do this. The seventh thing I wrote down in 90 minutes was finish this list. Uh, It took me six weeks to finish it. I'm on to my eighth list. And to date, Tim, I have been showing people how to start their list of 100. So this is 30 years ago I've mm-hmm. been doing this now for. Getting people to help them discover what's important, what matters and what makes a difference in their life. And to understand that, that passion is only one component of it. That when you start talking about passion, you need to talk about purpose, you need to talk about plan and you need to talk about progress. Now, that right there is a man on a mission. As he tells anyone who'll listen, 
when your why becomes clear, the how will find you. If you'd love to discover how to harness your passion, then take a listen to that full interview with Keith Abraham. Plus, there's hundreds more over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com or subscribe free on iTunes. I'd love you to do that. Hey, I'd also love to hear from you. Send us an email, tim at timreid, reid.com.au, or hit me up on Twitter at Timbo Reid. Be sure to check out Cornerstone if the idea of reducing your running costs by 70 plus percent excites the hell out of you. Or if you want to come on my fourth Create Freedom Through Outsourcing tour to the Philippines in May 2017, I'd love to see you there. Smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash tour. You'll find all the information. If you loved the Small Business Big Marketing show, then let another business owner know about it who could do with a little bit of marketing love. Maybe go and grab their phone and download it for them. Until next week, I'm Timbo Reid. Thanks for tuning in. May your marketing be the best marketing Bye for now.